Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. It is often easy to let our pride get in the way of serving others. We want to show what a great Christian we are, and that comes at the expense of unity with the body as a whole. You're listening to Untangling Hubris from Harmony by seminarian Grant Minsonides. Well, good evening. Our text, our text from this morning is, uh, for, I said this morning, our text for this evening is 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 31. If you would please turn there with me for a moment. Let's go into God's word together. Hear the word of the Lord. Just as one body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of many parts. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, these parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving great honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. This is the word of the Lord. I invite you to keep your Bibles out in front of you or readily on hand as we'll be flipping through a few different passages this evening on our journey together. But first of all, yes, um, good evening to you all. As Peter has so graciously introduced me, my name is Grantman Sonidas. I was born and raised here in this congregation, and I must say that it is a pleasure to be back. It has been too long, and it feels really good to be home. And I've received a very warm welcome from all of you. Peter, this, uh, Peter earlier this evening was telling me that Jesus Christ, when he preached in his own hometown, didn't go, it didn't go quite so well for him. So I'm glad that I have at least got it going well for me so far. 
as I was preparing this message over the last week or so, I've had a couple interesting thoughts that I wanted to share with you at the beginning. Uh, Just a few things that have been interesting to me uh, to reflect on as I've been preparing for this evening. For those of you who might not know exactly how deep my connection uh, my, to this church and congregation actually runs, it was here 25 years ago, almost to the day that I was baptized right here. It was here on this stage that I publicly committed myself to Christ and was welcomed to the table of fellowship to first partake in communion. It was here on this stage that I made profession of faith, and it was here that I became a member of the CRC Church. And to tell you the truth, for the last few years of my absence from this community, I'd begun to think that my time of rites of passage on this stage was over. And I think that we can all see this now, but oh, how wrong I was. God, our good and wonderful God, has an excellent sense of humor and irony, for he has seen fit to bring me back here after having moved away and started to build a life elsewhere for yet another spiritual milestone. God has brought me back to this stage to teach, to challenge, and to serve the congregation that has given me so much, that taught, challenged, and served me through my youth. It is a profound experience indeed to stand here, the roles having in some nebulous way been changed, even for just the slightest of, slightest of moments, with the expectation that I will be sharing wisdom and teaching with the congregation that raised me. And so I have to say that I don't stand here at this pulpit without a little bit of anxiety and insecurity. And there are multiple sides to that sentiment, but chief among them is this. If you've attended this church for a while or know some of its story and history, there's a long tradition here of excellence in preaching and teaching and leadership. And I, to my own chagrin, confess to you that I stand here with trepidation, not wanting to sully that reputation, or selfishly my own for that matter. And if I'm really honest, if I'm really honest, in my heart of hearts, I would really like to be lumped into that reputation as well. The last thing I want to do is step on it, especially since for so long I was a part of and reflected the ministry of this church community. So for the last few days and weeks, I've been very preoccupied with wanting to do a good job to deliver an impactful, competent, and memorable message. And I confess that I've been rather nervous, quite frankly, to deliver it. I want you all, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to get something out of this this evening. And I want to live up to the standards and the reputation of the strong leadership in this congregation that has gone before me. Selfishly, I want you to think that I actually know what I'm talking about and that I have a gift for preaching. And for a little while leading up to tonight, all of the things, all of these things caused me to be so focused on myself, so distracted from the message that God has been trying to give to me in turn to give to you, that he ended up needing to whack me over the head with this single fact. The Corinthian church, in our passage for this evening, was struggling with exactly the same thing that I've been struggling with as I've been preparing for this evening. They were far too focused on themselves. Like me, people in that congregation, in their heart of hearts, wanted other people to look at them and say, huh, you know something? I think he's got something there. He knows what he's talking about. The Holy Spirit has definitely blessed him. That's for certain. He has a gift. Their attention was inward. 
and God needed to use Paul to recalibrate their sense of self. To help this make a little bit more sense for all of you, the culture of the society in which the Corinthian church was placed was extremely structured. It was very much a hierarchical, social class-oriented society where people were always trying to climb the social ladder. If you go into the history of Rome and Roman culture, scholar upon scholar discusses the cutthroat nature of Roman society where people would resolve to using rather amazing methods, and I use that negatively, to gain power, wealth, and social status and rapport. And this culture of competition and self-centeredness where it was every man for himself in a dog-eat-dog world was creeping into the church community. New Christians in Corinth were trying to use Jesus and the Holy Spirit to climb the ladder. People were using Jesus to lift themselves up, and by doing so, they were stepping on others. The paradigm of self-effacing Christian love was being flipped on its head. Multiple biblical commentators mentioned that a major issue that Paul was addressing in our passage for this evening was spiritual snobbery and rivalries that were based on how spiritually gifted each other were. And that's, of course, not that difficult to see for ourselves. Most of us probably drew that conclusion as we read the scripture. But below it all, underneath all of it, the more stealthy and insidious problem that undergirded that whole issue was pride and self-righteousness. People were focused on themselves. People were lifting themselves up, singing louder next than those next to them in church, claiming to speak in tongues, maybe even when they weren't, claiming to prophesy, and then leveraging that to their own advantage to earn power and influence in the community. In our passage for this evening, Paul was addressing the issue of pride and self-righteousness in the specific context of worship and spiritual gifts. In a massive commentary on the books of the New Testament, on the books of the New Testament, N.T. Wright um, writes about the problem plaguing the Corinthian church. He says this, Quote, many of the problems that Paul addresses in the, in, this, in the Corinthian congregation were colored, if not directly caused, by, the, by intense factionalism within the small Corinthian church, reflecting the competitive culture of rivalry and personality politics that was nasty but normal in Corinth. To put it another way, the pride and the self-centeredness that were inherent to Roman culture was causing disunity in the Corinthian church community. The problem with the people in Corinth as individuals was pride, but the problem with them communally was disunity. Wright says it himself, the problems of the Corinthian church were colored, if not directly caused by, intense factionalism. Just another way to say they struggled to stay unified. Self-righteousness, pride, and self-centeredness created a scenario for the Corinthian church where in the context of worship and spiritual gifts, People ended up stepping on each other in their clamor for power, for influence, and for prestige. This, in turn, created a rather serious issue for the community. They couldn't get along. I want to take a second here to clarify what I mean when I use the word pride. Please keep this in mind for the rest of the message that, so that you can stay on the same page with me. I don't use the word to denote self-esteem. 
as some may use it. I don't use the word pride as a verb that refers to taking a healthy sense of pleasure or accomplishment in one's work. When I use the word pride tonight, I'm referring to a sense of arrogance, of self-importance, self-centeredness. Keep that in mind. A new pastor comes into a congregation, and along with the council, through much prayer and discernment, they decide that their specific worship community needs to move in the direction of contemporary music and worship arts. But the current worship leader in the community has been doing things the same way, their way, for 25 years. And they're very gifted and talented at what they do. They refuse to change. After a few years of prodding and pleading on behalf of the council and continuous refusal to do anything different, this worship leader is given a few months to make a change or risk being replaced by someone who will follow the council's direction. Chaos ensues. The worship leader leaves the church and takes a vast majority of of the musical talent in the congregation with them because they had spent 25 years developing a really strong, loyal, connected, talented, and exclusive praise team. They and the team had gotten so prideful and connected to their way of doing things and how well they did it that the church ultimately ended up very hurt by this, all because pride gave way to factionalism personality politics, and conflict. Pride has a way of pushing people apart, no? It causes us to get exceedingly annoyed when we notice it in others. And it also causes us to completely disregard the needs of others around us when we struggle with it ourselves. And this pattern still happens in our modern contemporary contexts. Maybe the specific presentation of the issue is different from community to community, from community to community. Maybe it's not in relationship, or maybe it's not in relation to worship and spiritual gifts, but maybe pride instead happens in leadership meetings, in assemblies and in small groups. People still end up competing for influence and power in churches people still end up getting stepped on. Relationships still end up being jeopardized, and the church still ends up distracted from its goal of other-seeking, self-effacing love and service. Because at the core, whether we know it consciously or not, we wrestle with this issue. We all wrestle with this issue. We all wrestle with self-centeredness and pride that pushes others away from us. Because we think that we are and what we have to offer are too important. Just to give you an example of how tricky this can get, just how easy it is to switch from thinking about others to thinking about ourselves and lifting ourselves up, think about something with me for a moment. It's easy to think of examples where we can point fingers at other people out in the world or maybe even in the church. Notice that they're doing something wrong and then get upset and righteously angry over it. And it makes us feel good that we're morally superior. It's easy to look at other people's mistakes and say, I'm so glad that God blessed me with scriptural wisdom and strength so that I don't have to deal with the horrible consequences that this person has brought down on themselves because of their misguided lifestyle. It's oh so easy to notice when we're obviously wiser, more spiritually intelligent, don't come from a broken home, or don't hurt ourselves and those around us because our faith has empowered us to live rightly 
or our parents to live rightly. It's easy to inflate our goodness, our wisdom, and our value in our own heads and become prideful. But when we do this, when we play the comparison game in this way, we're doing exactly what Paul is trying to help the Corinthian church avoid in this evening's passage. We're being inwardly focused. We're being self-righteous. We're inflating our own value and importance, and we are putting ourselves at great risk of being unhealthily prideful. We are doing anything but living the Christian Reformed lifestyle that we profess. We are being, we are being anything but good humble, self-effacing, Christ-like Christians. My friends, pride and self-righteousness and the tendency to be self-centered are not just a biblically bound first-century concept and phenomena. They are alive and active in our lives. They threaten to destroy the invitational, loving, and healing mission of the church by flipping our mental perspective on the world and making ourselves and our perceived value our egos, the center of our own stories. This creates unhealthy rivalries, competitiveness, factionalism that inevitably builds walls. And it drives people apart from one another, resulting in a rather cancerous disunity in the body of Christ that slowly eats away. All because people cannot take themselves out of the equation and think communally. I'm going to draw us back into the text for a moment. I told you we were going to go through a couple pieces of scripture. Pick up your Bibles if you have a chance. We're going to jump back into the first century Corinthian context of worship and spiritual gifts, in which Paul's addressing the pride issue and the resulting disunity of that congregation. And we're going to take a look at the solution that God offers to the Corinthians' pride issue. Between here and the end of the message, I have three things to leave you with. One, God encourages the Corinthians to embrace other-seeking, self-forgetful love and service. In response to all of these things that are going on in the Corinthian church, God, through Paul, is pleading with them to turn their attention away from themselves individually and toward one another. No, Paul says, your gifts are not to lift yourselves up, but to serve and lift up the body as a whole. For the weakest members require support and to be lifted up. In his appeal to this solution, which falls directly after our passage for this evening um, in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, if you're there with me, go ahead and look there, Paul adds one of the most remarkable lyrics ever written in Western civilization, rivaling Homer or Shakespeare in his extremely poignant description of love. Listen to this. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. 
Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then, we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. The point that God is making here in chapter 13 through Paul is not a simple reminder to the Corinthians about how to behave. It's a link between chapter 12, which we read, in which Paul says many gifts in one body. It's a link between chapter 12 and chapter 14, in which Paul instructs the Corinthians in how to avoid chaotic worship with people's egos stepping all over one another. Love, other-serving love, is a solution to both issues. But love is also a reminder pointing us toward chapter 15, which tells us that what really matters in this life is the future world, not our own egos, but the age to come which has already begun in Jesus and the Spirit. God is saying through Paul that love matters not just because it helps the church function better, but because it is a central characteristic of the new world, God's new kingdom, and we get to practice it in advance. God, in response to the Corinthian pride issue, encourages the church in Corinth to embrace other-seeking, self-forgetful love and service, and not just because it helps the church function like it should, but because it's what God's kingdom is built on. It's what the body of Christ is built on. Love is how God became the king of this world, and it is the example that he set for us through Christ on the cross. Point number two. The second thing that I want to leave you with and really reiterate is that God's solution to the Corinthian pride issue and resulting disunity is inherently Christological. The kind of love that God calls the Corinthian church to is rooted in the example of Jesus' own life, in his ministry and in his teachings. And to demonstrate that this love is not simply isolated to the Corinthian-specific context, that the love solution is not just for the Corinthians. Turn with me to Romans. Romans 15. We'll read verses 1 through 5. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. 
May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Jesus Christ had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this letter, Paul is addressing a very similar issue with the church in Rome. The church was divided, just as a Corinthian church was, and different factions of the church, namely the pious and the less pious, were sitting in self-righteous judgment and competition with one another. It's a pride and self-righteousness issue that is causing disunity. The division is centered around food laws, though, and which, and which specific days to observe as Sabbath. Slightly different context. But once again, the problem is disunity, and Christ-like love is a solution that he offers. May the God who gives encouragement and endurance give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Jesus Christ had, so that with one mind and with one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look to Christ's example, Paul is saying. God, through Paul, is calling the big C church, the big C church, to unity, a unity that glorifies our Heavenly Father, and he points us towards Christ's life and ministry as an example. Third and final point for you all. My friends, God is leading us, he's leading me, he's leading you in the direction of unity in the body and in the spirit this evening. God is leading all of us in the direction of Christ-like love and service toward one another. He is calling us, the body, to live as Christ, the head of the body, lived. In the same way that God exhorts the Corinthian church through Paul, the Father is exhorting you to demonstrate love and service toward one another, a love and service that is rooted in Christ's example. And he's left us a rather tremendous reminder of this call through the inspired power of the Holy Spirit. He left us a catechism. We read, this early, we, read, we read it earlier this evening. We have a reminder in question and answer 54 and 55 that we belong to a shared community of believers. And because we are a community of faith, we have a responsibility to use our gifts in loving Christ-like service of each other. We have an easily accessible reminder to do away with pride and self-righteousness and self-centeredness and to take ourselves out of the equation for the sake of others and also to glorify our Heavenly Father. Question 54 says, What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church? I believe that the Son of God, through His Spirit and Word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith, and that of this community, I am and always will be a living member. Question 55 says, What do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that believers, one and all, as members of this community, share in Christ and in all his treasures and gifts. Second, that each member should consider it a duty to use these gifts readily and cheerfully for the service and enrichment of the other members. Do you get it? The answer to pride, disunity, and conflict is to remind ourselves that we are a community, that you are a part of a bigger covenantal family, 
and that you have a responsibility to use your God-given gifts in service of the whole. This is so easy to forget in our Western, me-centered, consumeristic society where we are taught that it is me and my identity and my success and my freedom to pursue my own happiness and my own destiny that is all important. But no, Christ says, he calls us to a radical, countercultural way of life in which we see ourselves and our identity and our purpose and calling in life in and through how we relate to our church family. We are to be focused on our shared community and what is best for it. And in order to do that, we must embark on a ruthless quest to crucify our pride, to take ourselves out of the equation in every single way possible. As Paul says, gifts of the Holy Spirit are not gifts unto oneself. They are tools to be used for the betterment of others. To bring this message and example full circle for all of you, I mentioned at the beginning of my message that I've dealt with some trepidation, some insecurity as I've approached this evening. I've dealt with an egocentric, selfish desire to present myself well, to be impressive, to do a good job, to demonstrate that I have what it takes to stand here in front of many people that watched me grow to stand up straight, head high, and with confidence and actually be worthy of my privilege this evening to stand at this pulpit and to share God's word with you all in a meaningful way. To have something that is of value and worth and even to live up to the excellence of those who have gone before me. But here's the beautiful truth. Preaching and any other spiritual gift for that matter, is not a gift unto oneself to bolster one's ego. Preaching is, on behalf of the preacher, using a God-given gift to lift up and encourage and bolster, to encourage, teach, and remind and honor other members of the body. In the same way, God is calling each and every one of you, in the same way that he has called me, in my unique giftedness, to encourage and lift one another up, with whatever God has seen fit to gift you with. To love and serve each other in the radical manner that Christ exhibited for you on the cross, by staying. When he could have gotten down off the cross in self-righteousness and proven his value to the world, Jesus Christ stayed, hanging, bleeding, suffering, and dying pleading with God for our forgiveness because he was far more concerned with making us beautiful and holy and presentable than he was with himself. He, the most righteous and most praiseworthy human being ever to walk the planet, he stayed in relationship with you and me. He humbled himself. He sacrificed himself so that you could have eternal life. And God is challenging us He's challenging me and each and every one of you this evening to do the same. To humble ourselves, to take ourselves out of the equation so that we may lift each other up and present one another to God the Father in holiness and love. God is reminding us, inviting us, calling us, commanding us to live into the unity that he speaks of through Paul in our passage for this evening. 
He is challenging you to take yourselves out of the equation, to do away with self-righteousness and pride that causes division and pain, and to embrace loving service of each other. People of God, our Heavenly Father is exhorting you to use what he has gifted you, what he has gifted you with to bring peace, joy, love, and unity into the body of Christ. Look to his son's example and be free in love and service. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you this evening on our knees in humility. Lord, we are a prideful people. Pride is at the root of all sin. Father, take it away from us. Teach us to be humble and to relate to one another in love and service and to be outwardly focused so that we may build up the body that you set Jesus to be the head of so that we may partake in the love that is the foundation of your kingdom. Father, we give these things to you through the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.